Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Beyond the Bikini Radio. And in today's episode, I have a very exciting guest. Her name is Dr. Corey Probst. Welcome. Thank you, Nicole. Great to be here. I'm really excited to have you on today because I think that you really focus in on an issue that so many people in the bodybuilding community like to turn their head and not pay attention to, which Mm -hmm. is kind of food relationships, disordered eating, and creating a healthy relationship with your body and food and having that magical place of balance. So I'm very excited for our conversation today. Me too. Thank you. Tell me a little bit more about you, Corey, and what got you into this field? Yeah. So thank you for asking, Nicole. I'm a health psychologist. I've been doing mental health work and like emotional agility and disordered eating work for well over two decades now. Um, I have my own history of competing and my own history of disordered eating. Um, and the disordered eating came first. And I, you know, I was very disordered with my eating habits in my late teens and fortunately uh, recovered um, in my early, you know, was recovered by my early 20s and actually got into physique competition in 2005, 2006, and did not find, which isn't always the case for a lot of people who struggle through an eating disorder and recover, did not find that competing prompted or triggered um, any eating disordered behaviors again. Mm -hmm. So I was very, very fortunate that way. But, you know, I have a background in mental health. I have a master's in, in counseling. And so I've been doing therapy work with people for a really long time. And, you know, a lot of people get into that field because they want to figure themselves out, (laughs) which was very true for me. Um, Human behavior is fascinating to me, the mind, the connection between the mind and body. And I have a bachelor's in exercise physiology. So it was always my intention to really combine both of those fields of study and loves personally. Um, And I was able to do that for myself and for other people. Um, In 2008 is when I I came on board with the diet doc and became partners with Dr. Joe Klemzeski and was doing mostly nutrition coaching and um, heavy in work with competitors specifically who were coming to me with disordered eating behaviors like binge eating. very dysfunctional body image, which, you know, won't come as a surprise to the listeners of your podcast. Um, But so that's always been uh, what I've really uh, been most interested in. Um, You know, I've done a lot of general population nutrition and weight loss coaching, but it's not necessarily what I'm doing anymore currently. It's very much focused on helping individuals heal from body shame and from food fear and recovering in a way that allows them to live, live their lives more fully and in a a more whole, whole way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, what we often don't do as coaches is we're not looking at athletes and especially physique competitors as whole human beings. Mm -hmm. And that's so, so important. Uh, especially if they're going to love their sport and they're going to be able to do it in a really sustainable, functional way. And not everyone can. 
<laughs> yeah, I think that that's really important is like the whole competitor space is not for everyone. And yeah, and we have so much in common. Like it's kind of funny too, because I also have the bachelor's in exercise science. I struggled with disordered eating before really I got into competing, but mm -hmm. I got into that because I just wanted to learn more about how to move the body right because I had a feeling I was doing it wrong. I was like mm, working out two, three hours a day doesn't seem right. So like, I need to figure this out. So mm -hmm. um, I do find that really interesting how you wanted to learn more about that. But as you work with people, you find that it's not really about the protocols. It's not really about the workouts. It's about their relationship with food. And I see so much damage in a way with people's relationship with food. And maybe that comes from social media. Maybe it comes from something they were growing up with, but um, it's really unfortunate when I see coaches not address that because if you don't fix the relationship, you're just putting a bandaid over it temporarily. I completely agree with you, Nicole, and I think a lot of times our relationship with food stems from our relationship with our bodies. Now, that's not to say it always happens that way, which comes first, the chicken or the egg, but, you know, all of us have some sort of history with how our bodies were, were treated or looked at or talked about, um, mm -hmm. and the same with food. You know, if we grew up in an environment that was very food scarce, um, you know, we're going to likely feel very compelled when food is in front of us to eat it. Mm -hmm. um, if we grew up in an environment, I work with a lot of clients who they've been dieting from such a young age, um, you know, some as early as five or younger. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. We're going to have a different sort of relationship with our bodies. Yeah we're just so influenced by not just the culture, like you mentioned, social media, um, you know, the medical model of what is healthy. And I put that in air quotes because you can't look at a person and determine their health by any means. Weight, size, shape does not determine whether someone is healthy. Um, but there's the thin ideal and the beauty myth and, um, just all of these things really influence how we act towards ourselves. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's really weighty, uh, the influence that other people have um, on how, who and how we believe that, like who we believe we should be and how we believe we should look in order to fit in and or belong. Um, and so, so much of the work is about kind of disentangling and pulling apart all of the different factors that are playing a role and how we are often so much just pawns um, and not living in accordance with our values, but with the values of society instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know when I struggled more so with the disordered eating, it was just trying to be like super small and really skinny because right. I was always told in my family, like, you look like a model. And it's just because I'm a little bit taller and a little bit longer. And um, I was on the thinner side, but, you know, 14, I started dieting, which hearing mm -hmm. someone dieting at five really like hurts my heart. <laughs> but I even think 14 is super young. And like, I was so hyper aware of like my food and exercising. And I almost felt like I had to keep up this ideal of what other people thought I should be. Um, like I was always like the thinnest in my family and like people were always like, you should do modeling. I'm like, maybe I should. And 
I'll never forget. Like I looked up like the measurements of a model, like a five ten model. I'm like, Oh, they have a 23 inch waist. I need to have a 23 inch waist. Not that I was going for castings or anything, but to see how competitive and how hyper-focused I got at such a young age. And it was more so on people's other ideals. And I think that women in particular are people pleasers. So if someone says that they're supposed to be something, they almost try to do that to make someone else happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. I, we can become so easily swayed away from our wants our needs, what is important to us, our values, to what does everyone else want? What does everyone else need? Mm-hmm. Um, and so healing and recovery from these sorts of things often demands that we take a really reflective, hard look at, you know, how are we living? Are we living mm-hmm. in accordance with our values? Yeah. Now, when you were starting your competitive career, when you were backstage, did you notice anything that seemed a little abnormal or maybe like throughout your prep where you're like, I don't know if that's like normal behavior because, you know, in this space they're saying like work harder, like push through it. But like from someone who really prioritized mental health, I'm sure that you could see like that fine line of like, okay, when are things too much? And when is this like, you're doing it for the sport and then you've crossed the line to you've developed a full-blown disorder. Yeah, I look at everything as operating on a continuum, Nicole. So I'm definitely kind of looking at things on this sliding scale. Yeah, it's like a spectrum. That's right. Yeah. I would say that most of the the athletes that I see aren't, um, they don't have a diagnosable eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, But they do absolutely exhibit disordered eating behaviors. And, you know, I have to say that personally for me, when I first got into it, um, yeah, I was noticing some things like don't drink. (laughs) I'm going way back here. Like there was a time when we were told not to drink water. Um, (laughs) So like that, I don't know. that. There's still some coaches out there. I know there has to be a coach out there that is still saying that. So don't feel bad. Okay. So yes, something like that, the extreme things. Um, I remember when I first started competing too, like just eating the same foods over and over and over again, and really having very little amount of flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, that in my mind at that time, cause I was very new to competing when I was approached in the gym, I was just there working out yeah. and a woman approached me and was like, you would probably do really well in bodybuilding. And I'm like, what's that? (laughs) I had no idea. And so that's when I started reading like oxygen magazine. And I was in Colorado at the time. And I went to this one day camp that an IFBB pro who lived there put on. Um, But so, you know, I had my, my minor in nutrition and I'd gone through an eating disorder. So I, I did understand like some of these things don't seem that healthy and like, I should kind of be watching out here. And Mm I, you know, caution kicked in. Um, But it's like, one of the big things was 
you know, as competitors, we are actually learning how to, and we are rewarded for ignoring our body cues. Yeah. We we're going to feel hungry and we intentionally say, nope, not eating. It's not time yet. Or you have another two hours. You have to wait. Or you I'm feel like to bed hungry, like all that yeah. extreme. Oh All God. that extreme and doing things to try to prevent hunger and yeah. get through and white knuckle your way through hunger, like mm-hmm. chewing a lot of gum or sucking on Tic Tacs or yeah. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we practice, we practice different ways of trying to turn off the physical signals. Um, and so we, w- what we're doing is we're really reinforcing an approach with ourselves that's it, it's not bent toward psychological and physical health in any way. Um, what I do appreciate about your podcast, because I've listened to a lot of the episodes, Nicole, is oh, that thank you. <laughs> absolutely, like you, you are very intentional in saying a lot of the things that we do as competitors are not healthy and not sustainable. This mm-hmm. is a short term thing. And it doesn't seem to matter, unfortunately, how many times I say that, because I still think people can think, well, why not me? Why can't I be the exception? Why can't I be the person that maintains looking stagely near round? Why can't I be the person that has the perfect reverse diet and I only maintain five pounds above stage weight? And I'm like, that's not the reality for most. Like most of us are not the genetic exception, you know, and it's like we have to kind of accept that. And what are we trying to avoid too? Like when we're trying to avoid gaining a healthy amount of body fat, even after a show, like, what are you really trying to avoid? Like, are you afraid that people aren't going to take you as seriously because you don't look like you can step on stage right now? And I see that a lot with the coaching field is like, you think now because you don't look shredded (laughs) that people won't want to work with you, which is really unfortunate. You're not legitimate anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't project this image that will attract clients. And yet compliments this, and stuff, you know. That's right. Yeah. You know, you know, as we're talking and we're talking about the things that are disordered. Um, it's very, I think it's hard and very difficult for a lot of people to go through a prep. And, you know, when I was prepping and before I had retired and I, I competed for over six years and did over 20 shows, you know, and my preps were usually like six months long. Even if I had six pounds to lose, they were six months long because I, yeah, (laughs) need the time. Like I'm a, I don't, uh, I'm not an ectomorph. (laughs) So it, it just takes time. Um, And none of my preps were easy. They were always, always felt arduous. Um, I would get very depressed. I would, like, I would have very irregular and I would periods and lose my period. Um, I wouldn't smile. I felt terrible. Um, Mm -hmm. And yet I did it anyway until I just couldn't do it anymore and decided that, you know, I had other priorities that I wanted to pursue in my life. But the way that our brains work is the more we do something, the more reinforced that thought behavior behavior becomes. Mm -hmm. And so to think that we could 
compete and be doing all of these things and be intentionally like shutting off and ignoring and avoiding things and not come out the other side with some amount of dysfunction, I think is dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that, some of that dissonance is going to happen yeah. um, because we can't override everything that our bodies are doing with a mindset. Mm-hmm. We just can't. Um, you know, if we look at the Minnesota starvation experiment study and we see how worth your listeners. I'm so excited you're bringing this up because I've always wanted to talk about this. So you can really explain this study. So, yeah, I won't go into too much detail, but it really just indicates what happens when we go into a caloric deficit. I believe that the men that they did this study on, um, they're overall calories, I think were decreased by 40% from what they were at baseline. And what they saw was just this tremendous amount of food preoccupation um, that started to occur and like hoarding of food. And, you know, I see competitors all the time, like spending so much time baking and then freezing and watching the food network and we're just reinforcing that rumination and that preoccupation. Um, And at the same time, it's like, we tell people as coaches, we tell people often to like engineer your environment so that your prep is as easy as possible and you're not being triggered by a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. But our bodies are our bodies. (laughs) Biology is biology. And it's our bodies that oftentimes are driving that sort of like, preoccupational behavior, like thinking about food, thinking about food, thinking about food, because we're literally starving. Mm -hmm. And then our minds are trying to override that and say, stop thinking about food so much. And that can actually just perpetuate the cycle. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times what we need to do is really learn if we're going to (laughs) compete and we're going to put ourselves through this very difficult process. We have to learn new skills. We have to learn mindfulness skills. We have to learn to become, you know, better feelers as opposed to always trying to feel better. We literally live in this feel better world. Like Mm -hmm. if it's uncomfortable, fix it. (laughs) If you don't like it, change it. And that's not always possible. And it's not necessarily the most effective or functional thing to do yeah you know if I'm upset with um if I'm having a bad body day like the best thing I can do is not try to change my body or jump into a diet yeah it's like for those of us who've had disordered eating and even if you haven't we live in a culture that perpetuates this belief that if you don't like your body change your body but oftentimes instead what we need to do is recognize that living in a body is freaking hard. Yeah. It's just hard. It's yeah. painful. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, we've got gas. Sometimes we're bloated like this all normal stuff. It doesn't require fixing and changing. And oftentimes if something else is going on in our lives that we're upset about or is causing some amount of stress or discomfort, especially as women, we tend to turn 
towards our bodies and target them or target food. And in turn, those relationships suffer. Um, mm-hmm. And like do that because you want to feel a sense of control. Yeah. And my one girlfriend and I were talking about how like, it doesn't matter if you're super lean or if you're at your heaviest, you're always going to have bad body image days. So like being smaller really isn't the answer. Like, are you stressed out? Are you hungry? Are you angry? Like Mm -hmm. she uses like the halt terminology. And like, that's really awesome because like, it makes you think of like, how am I taking like financial stress and reflecting it on my body? Like, Honestly, you're probably just wanting to use it as a distraction to not focus on like, oh, I should be working on my budget right now, you know? So like, that's, that's, um, it's really interesting how we can do that. And I, I find that people will either pick themselves apart with their body image, or sometimes they use food as a distraction. I feel bad. I feel stressed. I got in a fight with my boyfriend. Like I'm going to go, you know, it's the cheesy thing of like, go eat some ice cream. You're going to feel better or go have some wine. You're going to feel better. But like, is that really always the case? Probably not. Well, and that's a really interesting question, Nicole, because we literally probably immediately in the short term will feel better if we're distracted from the uncomfortable or unpleasant emotion that is right there for us. Yeah. Yet we under, we understand intellectually, but we sometimes have to understand it like internally by going through the experience. We understand intellectually that we probably won't feel better in the long term. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of this is about, like I said, learning to become a better feeler as opposed to always working towards feeling better if that makes sense because we're so we live in this world what what's that book called fuck feelings like pardon my language i hope that's okay language on your podcast (laughs) there's just the you get these messages all the time like ignore you don't need emotions are bad you can't react emotionally emotional eating is bad and yet so many of the behaviors that we engage in are functional Mm -hmm. they are serving a purpose if we don't have the skill to be with whatever stress or discomfort is present for us we're going to do something and if all we know to do is to help ourselves feel differently with food then you know, is that a bad behavior? Is it dysfunctional? Or for that person, is it actually functional? And we Mm -hmm. can look at binge eating as the same thing. Is that actually a dysfunctional behavior? Or is it functional? Well, for a lot of people, it's functional. If your body is starving, (laughs) eating a bunch of food in that moment is very functional, especially if we don't have new or different ways of coping with discomfort or emotion. Or knowing what to do when an emotion surfaces that, like, maybe we've never felt before, um, and that feels foreign. And so it is, there's so much, so much work to be done and practice around mindfulness and being able to sit with whatever is present for us. And this is a lot of what I did as a competitor. You know, I remember just in moments of physical discomfort and physical hunger and pain. I had to diet really hard. Let me tell you, I have to get to 5% body fat as a bodybuilder, but it was very much like 
okay, this, I don't like this, because the acknowledgement piece of discomfort is really re important. The harder we try to push it away and avoid it, the harder it pushes back at us later. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to say, I don't like this, and yet I'm here, I'm actually okay. I'm not necessarily threatened in any way. Um, this is uncomfortable. This is pretty unpleasant. And yet it's temporary. Mm -hmm. Like talking myself through in a really compassionate kind way, the difficult moments. And what a lot of competitors will do is they'll try to fix it immediately because it's, it, they just don't have the skill or know what to do um, in, in those moments. Yeah, it reminds me of um, a conversation I had with my fiance. We just moved into our house and they actually last minute changed our closing date. And I was freaking out because we had our lease for a certain amount of time. I had everything planned out with appointments and the movers and I am in prep right now and I was freaking out. I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't want to be homeless. And like, we have all this planned. And he's just like, it's outside your, outside of your three feet. And for a second, I got really mad at him because I'm like, you're not acknowledging how I feel right now. But like, he was right. I was trying to fix something that I couldn't fix. It was out of my control. And I was taking all this energy. I literally felt physically sick from like how much stress I had that I was kind of wasting it in a way of like trying to control the situation I couldn't control. So like when he said that I initially got mad, but then I was like, he's absolutely right. And I think that we try to control things that are outside of our three feet and we have to learn how to like be annoyed with it and be upset with it. That's fine. But like, you can't fix everything. That, oh, that's very well said. I like to use the word instead of control. I like to use the word influence. Yeah. Um, what about the situation can I influence right now mm -hmm. um, is a really good question to ask. And sometimes there isn't anything except how we're going to respond in the moment. Yeah. And maybe it's, it's a breath. Maybe it's a pause. Maybe it's in that moment. You know, you, we learn to recognize what helps us and that's effective and sustainable. So in that moment, like, yeah, you wanted your, you wanted your fiance to say, oh my God, babe, I totally understand. Like I'm feeling yeah. that too. And <laughs> here's how we need to approach it. Um, we need that reassurance sometimes and that validation that nothing was wrong with the way that you were feeling. Mm -hmm. Nothing was wrong at all. Like so understandable. And yet like, in, you know, in Buddhism, they talk about the first arrow and the second arrow. That first arrow is the situation, like closing date was moved. And now you've got all this other stuff that's messed up. Mm -hmm. um, the second, like, and you feel the discomfort of that. The second arrow is the suffering that occurs because you're trying to push away reality. <laughs> like it shouldn't be this way yeah and so we suffer a lot more you know when we pile on all the additional stuff and we judge what is present right there in the moment mm -hmm. yeah what are some like mindfulness um maybe exercises you give your clients who are like kind of getting into the mindset of like the buckets of like i i don't mm -hmm. care anymore i give up like this doesn't matter like are there anything that you recommend for people to like pause and like reevaluate? 
Yeah, I think that pause is super important. I think actually doing some work before we get into the fuckets is really, really <laughs> crucial <laughs> um, to have a process that we're going to go through and ha- asking the question like, um, how do I know that the efforts are approaching? Like, mm-hmm. what are the signals? What are the cues? In what sorts of situations do they present themselves? Is it around certain people or places or levels of hunger or physical discomfort? Or if we've competed before too, and we have the experiences of previous shows, you know, what have we learned from those? At Mm -hmm. what point in the prep do, you know, is it, has it, become very real where those tend to pop up it's like the more awareness that we have the better able we can become mindful mm-hmm. at the same time mindfulness helps promote that awareness yeah. um, so if we can pause and i always recommend breathing because the pause is more intellectual the pause is like okay stop we don't need to act right now the breathing is the physiological piece. And when we can combine them, now the nervous system ha- is better able and more effective to kind of deactivate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the breathing piece and really extending the exhale activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is that rest and digest more calm branch of the nervous system. Mm-hmm. So the pause, the breathing, And then becoming really aware when we start to pile on the judgments. What we tend to do is when things are really good and they're positive, we tend to want to hold on to them really tightly. Like, don't go away. This must stay here. (laughs) And then when things are really uncomfortable, we tend to, to act in like a very aversive way. So we want to push away or avoid or smother or tamp out right yeah like fight fight or flight and recognizing like wait is this really a threat what what really is what are the legitimate threats Mm -hmm. here do and starting to really understand and recognize and observe in ourselves like what we push away what we tend to have um aversions toward Mm -hmm. um in what ways how do, how do our minds actually work and operate? Like, <clears throat> what are the thoughts that we have? Do we tend to think quickly in some situations? Do we tend to be really impulsive in some situations when such and such a situation comes up? Um, you know, is this when we are, we have a little bit more clarity of mind and we can act in a more sort of skillful or wise way? It's, aware, it's always awareness first yeah. because we can't necessarily change anything that we're not aware of, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that it takes time. Like if you're trying to get into more of a mindfulness and have more awareness, like it's not going to happen overnight. And you're also mm-hmm. going to find when you pay attention to your behaviors, you'll find which ones that you need to work on. But working with someone to help figure out what those are for you is also helpful because sometimes like, 
it, when we have a habit and we're so used to it, like, let's talk about something obvious, like smoking. Um, when we have a habit, like, unless someone says like, Hey, like we need to work on that. There's a risk because of that. They might not know that, you know, you know, back in the sixties, like it was very normal. And then like over time, they're like, yeah, let's not do that because here's why, but you, you can go through life and not be aware of these things. And I think it's so much easier to not be aware because of the, all the distractions we have now, but being more aware and having mindfulness really does take time. And even thinking about myself, like five years ago, I had a lot less awareness than compared to now, but it's also like a lifelong thing you're learning. It is a daily moment to moment practice. Yeah. And we, we're not always going to be aware and in a mindful space. So to expect that from ourselves too, is, is just really unrealistic, but to take the time to ask the reflective questions. And I think asking questions is really important um, in order to get to that, that aware place. Um, And, you know, especially when we're talking about competing and we're talking about high level athletes and we're talking about, you know, doing things that, that are extreme. Physique competition in many ways is very, very extreme. Um, you know, we have to approach ourselves, and this goes right along with mindfulness. Um, we have to approach ourselves with compassion and kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, when we engage, and we will engage oftentimes um, when we're competing in behaviors that we're maybe not super proud of <laughs> mm-hmm. or that cause us some disappointment. When we do engage in those behaviors, we ideally approach ourselves and respond in kind ways. We are not motivated by criticism. We're not motivated by contempt. Um, We're not motivated by beating ourselves up. Mm -hmm. Now, it can change our behavior in the short term, but you know, if you think about the impact of, let, let's say we're talking about a human relationship, let's use you and your fiance as an example. Um, if in that moment when the house closing date changed and, you know, you express this just fear and frustration and he's like, why are you being so stupid? I mean, how do, <laughs> what does that prompt for you? Yeah, that doesn't, that makes you feel worse. <laughs> makes you feel worse you feel threatened and Mm -hmm. it it doesn't motivate you to open up expand become reflective and be able to move into that space you talked about like what would be the next best thing that I could influence now yeah like we're not in that mental space when we criticize and approach ourselves in a very like blasting shaming way yeah and like same goes with like binge eating like don't be like Yes. You, you idiot. You need to restrict more. You should have more discipline. Like, I can't believe you did that. Instead of just be like, okay, what happened happened. How can I feel better about tomorrow? And that's probably going to look like hydrating and, you know, getting some rest and walking and do movement that feels good. Not like a million burpees. Like that doesn't feel good for anyone. So like you have to treat your body with respect because if you always punish yourself, like it's just going to make it worse. It does. We know from, you know, from so much research that 
it's restriction that often causes the binge eating in the first place. So mm -hmm. if we engage in binge eating and then we follow that up by compensating with more restriction, okay, well then I'm not going to eat today. And yeah. restriction looks a lot of different ways. Adding on additional exercise is a form of restriction. So too is psychological restriction, which sounds like during the binge, even like I shouldn't be eating this, like you're eating too much. Like you're going to have to starve tomorrow, whatever it is, all of that just, it, it starts the cycle over again. Yeah. So yes, absolutely. What you said, Nicole is so true. We have to, and you know, what's underneath being able to not go to that place of this immediate impulsive, like must do this next thing to fix it. Mm -hmm. It's learning skills of meeting ourselves right where we are, learning what, how to be self-compassionate, which includes like offering ourselves kindness. Like if a friend did it, how would we talk to them? How would yeah. we respond to them? Mindfulness. So not approaching ourselves in a really judgmental way. And then the third thing, which is, you know, I'm not the only one who is going through this right now mm -hmm. at any any one time in any prep, someone is experiencing this as well. Yeah. And that sense of common humanity that like, I'm not alone in this. Oh, it feels horrible. Like, I don't, I really wish this had not happened. I don't like it. I, I feel gross. My body hurts. Um, and like, I'm not by myself. Mm-hmm. I don't need to go to some impulsive behavior to fix this right away and to feel better. It's temporary on its own. And, you know, I obviously have some new skills to learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's always like a learning experience that you can take away from something negative going on. Yeah. It sucks. It, it sucks in the moment. <laughs> There's highs and lows, but I definitely think that, this episode is going to be helpful. Um, hopefully people listening were able to take a deep breath throughout the middle of it as well and just gain some mindfulness. Now, if someone is wanting to get more help and is wanting to work more on these behaviors, how would they be able to reach out to you? Yeah, you can reach out to me via email. My email is Corey and spelled K-O-R-I at thedietdoc.com. Um, you can also go to the dietdoc.com website where you'll see the programming that I offer. I also have some online courses specifically geared towards our relationship with our bodies and our relationship with food and healing those and um, really working on the recovery aspects of those things and getting into the mindfulness like we talked about. And then on Instagram, Nicole, I'm at the diet doc life. Yep. And guys, I'm going to have all of her information down below so you can check out Corey there. Thanks again. Thanks, Nicole.